Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. This is uh, Micah 6, 6 through 8 from the New International Version. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word from Micah. Uh, we thank you and we ask that you'd open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts to hear your word this morning, not my words, but the words you spoke to Micah and how they may be speaking to us today. Open our hearts and minds and spirits to what only you can speak. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. I was... Uh, Reflecting this past week, and I, I always love when I'm going to do a talk. I think we all maybe remember writing papers back in, in high school or college, or maybe you're still in those years. I love to start with a quote because it like catches people's attention. And so I was like trying to find one that would fit what I was going to be talking about today. And honestly, nothing was coming to me until I remembered um, this quote from an author named Zora Neale Hurston from her, uh, from her book, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Has anyone read this book? I see one hand. Anyone else? I'll be honest, you're the only person in this room that has read this book. I haven't even read that book. <laughs> Um, like a great millennial, I was on social media and I saw this quote that I thought was so good and she said what I was trying to say in one sentence. Uh, she said, there are years that ask questions and years that answer. There are years that ask questions and years that answer. And boy, I need to go back and read her book. Apparently it's a classic and it was written in the, in the 30s. So I wanna go back to that. But there are years that ask questions and years that answer. I think we are right now in a, in a season as a world, as a culture, in those years that are asking questions more so than the years that are giving answers. And sometimes the questions that we ask tell us more then the answers to the questions would, even if we had them, right? The questions that we ask reveal what's really on our heart, what's really consuming our mind and our energy at any given moment. I mean, there are surface level questions that we all ask, like what should I have for lunch today? Or uh, what should I do on my day off or for vacation? And those are fine, but then there are those deeper questions that really get to the core of what we're thinking about. What should I do with the rest of my life? or why does suffering and pain in, exist in the world? These kinds of questions, these deeper, tougher questions are so important because they teach us something whether or not we have the answer. The question in and of itself is important. Our culture is asking a lot of tough questions right now. Systems and structures are being uprooted because of the questions that our society is asking. 
We're asking questions about our nation's history, questions about our political system, questions about religion. These are good things to question. And many are questioning Christianity. People inside and outside of the church have good, tough questions to ask about Christianity. What questions are the people in your life asking right now? What questions are they asking about Christianity? What questions are you asking about Christianity? There's so many good things to ask, not just about Christianity, but about everything in life. But there's one in particular that I, I feel like I keep hearing. I feel like it keeps coming up in conversations, in podcasts, in, in things that I'm listening to, in relationships with my friends. And the question that I think keeps coming up is this. Is Christianity actually a force for good in the world? Is Christianity actually a force for good in the world, or does it do more harm than good? That's a powerful question. <laughs> and if we look at what Christians are doing now and what we've done throughout history, if we tallied everything up and ranked good or bad, positive or negative, I'm not sure which side it would land on. I'm not sure how I would answer that question. And I honestly don't, I'm not saying that we even could answer that question, but the question itself is more important than the answer. The question itself reveals what many of us are really concerned about. If our culture, if our world is going to care at all about Christianity, then it has to be a force for good in the world. It has to do more tangible good than harm. The good news that at least I believe, and the good news I want to share with you today is that I think that's what Christianity was always intended to be. In her true core identity, that is why the church has always existed, and that is why the church exists today. The early church began as a community of people who were following the way of Jesus for the good of the world around them. If you've been around throughout the last several months, we've been going through kind of a deep dive through the book of Acts. We've been looking at the early church and her history, her early actions. We began with what many consider the start of the church, a key moment in the early church when Pentecost descended with tongues of fire on the early church. And that led them to become a community that centered their lives around teaching, prayer, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. We continued to move through the book of Acts, looking how the early church wrestled with their new identity, what, what we're calling the Missio Dei, not because that's the name of the church, but because the Missio Dei is the mission of God. They wrestled through disagreements, persecution, imprisonment, all while discerning and questioning how to best live out their new communal identity. What does it look like to live out the mission of God through disagreement, through persecution, through trials? How did the early church spread the gospel as a force for good in the world? See, our culture is asking questions. The early church asked many questions, and we are asking questions today. And I want to use that to bring us back to our text from Micah, which, if you noticed, was many, many questions. The prophet Micah had really good questions to ask. Micah, like a good prophet, was not afraid 
to ask tough questions. If we were looking at um, Israel's history at this point, I don't have time to go into all the details, but at this point in Israel's history, they were in a, in a place of disobedience. They were straying from the way that God wanted them to live. Micah was profoundly aware of the social issues of his day, the poverty, the injustice that was in the land, and he knew that Israel needed to listen to their God to turn back to the way that God had wanted them to live as a force for good. So by asking difficult questions, Micah pierces through the fog and he gets to the heart of what was really going on in Israel at that time. In the verses that are just before our text today, Micah is speaking prophetically on behalf of God to the people of Israel. The Lord wants the people to remember what God has done for them, what God did for them in the Exodus when he freed them from slavery, brought them out of Egypt. God knows that if the people of Israel would remember who God truly is, how God desires to bless them, not to curse them, then they would turn from their evil ways and follow the good way of God. So God was reminding Israel of this, and his reminder was so timely that Micah actually suddenly, in our verses, he switches characters. He goes from speaking prophetically as God to God's people to speaking as an individual in the first person and almost responding back to God. He's responding to God as Micah the prophet, but also as a representative for the entire people of Israel. And I find it interesting that Micah, his response to God's question is not with an answer, but actually with another question. After remembering God's powerful redemption, God's salvation, the Exodus, most of the people in Israel at the time would have known how to respond. They had a system in place. They would just respond in worship. They would have known, at the very least, how to make it look like they were grateful for what God had done, bow down in worship, offer a sacrifice to God. There was an entire sacrificial offering process depending on which type of offering was being made, a grain offering, a guilt offering, a purification offering, a burnt offering, and so on and so forth. And most people knew the process well. So after remembering God's saving acts of redemption, the people would have known how to respond. And Micah responds a little bit differently, but Similarly, Micah says this. This is the first verse of our, of our text, Micah 6.6. 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? It's a good, simple question. Most of the average people of Israel at the time would have responded, yes, that's, that's good, Micah. That's a good place to start. But Micah is not satisfied with that response. Micah continues his line of questioning, and his questions themselves become prophetic. I can almost hear Micah's tone of voice shifting at this point as he starts to exaggerate his questions. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Things escalated pretty quickly, Micah. He took us from a few young calves to thousands of rams, thousands of rivers of olive oil. I don't have a membership, but I don't think Costco carries rivers of olive oil. Um, if they do, I need to get a Costco card because that's a good deal. But sorry, dumb Costco joke. Um, but anyway, Micah, Micah keeps going with, with his line of questioning. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body 
for the sin of my soul. If thousands of rams won't please God, if 10,000 rivers of olive oil won't either, how about my own firstborn child? Surely that will satisfy my God and grant me entrance to his presence. You notice how Micah's offerings get more and more intense from a few calves to thousands of rivers of olive oil to his own child. Why is Micah being so intense? Well, Micah, like a good prophet, is calling out a flawed understanding of offerings and sacrifice that was present in his culture in Israel at the time. Some within Israel at that time were under the impression that they could earn more access to God if they sacrificed more. Micah is using this hyperbole to make his point abundantly clear. It's absurd to think about God that way. God doesn't want burnt offerings of young calves. God doesn't want thousands of rivers of olive oil. God doesn't want our children sacrificed on the altar. No, God doesn't want any of that. Well, then what does God want? And thankfully, Micah begins to answer that with another question. Verse 8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The truest offering, the proper response to Micah's original question, how should I respond to God's goodness, is an offering, but it's not a burnt offering. It's an offering of justice. It's an offering of mercy. It's an offering of humility. Micah gets to the heart of the issue that his culture was facing. Some of the people thought they were in the right relationship with God because they were performing the proper religious rituals, but they didn't realize that their religious rituals were meaningless without real justice flowing out of their religious rituals into the streets of the city. They saw their offerings as a competition to earn God's favor, not as tangible experiences of God's mercy that would form them into merciful people. They wanted the extremity of their sacrifice for bragging rights, not as a tool to teach them what it means to walk in humility with God. The problem was not the religious rituals in and of themselves. No, the problem was that they were not leading to justice in the world around them. There was a disconnect between what was happening in the temple and what was happening in the town. Generosity toward God in the temple was not leading toward justice for the poor in the town. And unfortunately, I think many of our churches today face the same problem. We've torn apart our private spirituality from our public spirituality. We've allowed the meaning of our religious rituals to be hollowed out to the point that we often leave this building no different than how we entered it. We've believed the lie that we can be in right relationship with God while ignoring the needs of our neighbors, that we can follow Jesus to the doors of the church building but not follow him to the margins of society, to the weakest and most vulnerable people of our city. I was reading uh, my NIV study Bible this week as I was preparing, and they said this about Micah's call to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. They said, this is the most memorable statement in the Old Testament defining a proper relationship to God. The most memorable statement in the Old Testament defining a proper relationship to God. And essentially what I, what I think that's saying is that 
People, God's people have always known whether or not they were in right relationship with God, not based on their religious rituals, but based on whether or not they did justice, loved mercy, and walked humbly with God. And the same is true for us. If we are actually going to be the Missio Dei, the mission of God, then we have to do the Missio Dei. Our very identity, our very being is the mission of God, and that should always lead us to live out the mission of God. And at this point, I just want to be extremely clear, so please hear me. I am not, like, speaking at you in this room. I'm not just calling out some other churches. I'm very much speaking and preaching to myself. I need to hear this word. This is a convicting word from God, and I think we all need to hear it. One of the major reasons... I believe that so many are moving on from Christianity is because in many ways Christianity has moved on from the mission of God. So many people that I know, and I'm sure many people that you know, are leaving or at the very least questioning Christianity. And that's because many expressions of Christianity have abandoned what it means to be and do God's mission. So what does it look like then for us to actually do God's mission out of that place of being God's mission? Well, I have a Sunday school answer. We're going to look to Jesus. I think the first place we should look after hearing Micah's call is to look to another prophet, uh, the prophet of all prophets, who is Jesus. Jesus was intimately familiar with the Old Testament prophets. He didn't just read the scriptures. He recited the scriptures. Um, Let's look at the words of Amos, which are eerily similar to Micah's. Jesus would have recited these in in his childhood all the way through the rest of his life. These are Amos' words. Away with the noise of your song. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Jesus knew the words of the prophet Hosea, who spoke clearly of what God truly wants. Hear God, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus identified so deeply with the prophets that he not only quoted the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue, he himself became the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Listen to Jesus, quote the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The mission that Jesus came to bring was a mission of good news for the poor, freedom for prisoners and the oppressed, recovery of sight for the blind. Jesus's mission was to demonstrate and proclaim that kind of good news. And as followers of Jesus, we have the exact same mission. Everywhere we go, we are invited to be on mission with Jesus, a mission of justice in places of injustice, a mission of loving mercy, not sacrifice, a mission of walking humbly alongside our God wherever God wants to lead us. If we're going to be the Missio Dei, then we must do the Missio Dei. We must become people who act with justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. But how, how do we actually become these kinds of people? Because it's not easy. It, it hasn't been easy in my life. I'm preaching to myself. How do we actually become these kinds of people? Um, 
we're not going to become this kind of person just from hearing a good sermon. And I, this sermon's just okay. There's a lot of much better ones on this topic. And so we're not going to become just and merciful people just from hearing a good sermon. We're not going to become this kind of people just because we feel guilty about not doing enough good in the world. How does this shift from being something that we feel guilty about or we feel like we have to do into something that we desperately want to do. You know the difference? Something you have to do versus something you want to do? Um, a few months ago, I was on my, I guess I'm on social media too much. I started with social media and I got a story about social media, but my algorithm is pretty good because I get good advertisements. And I got an advertisement for a concert that was gonna be happening last week. And so this is a few months ago and I was like, oh, awesome. You know, I scrolled around, I texted a friend who I thought would wanna go with me. He's like, yeah, let's go. And then just in the, you know, like life happens and I forgot to buy the tickets. And then I'm scrolling and it sold out, I see that. I started following that artist and, and his ticket sold out. And so I'm super bummed. Like, oh, I'm not gonna be able to go, this, this is a bummer. Then because he sold out so fast, he, he added a second show the, the following night. So I immediately hopped on, bought two tickets, like before even asking my friend if he could still go. And I was just super excited, texted another friend, he was gonna join us. It's like, yes, like I'm in for the second show. This is gonna be awesome. And fast forward, you know, it was like two months in advance. Um, and so fast forward and the week of the concert is actually coming and I pull out my calendar. It was gonna be on Sunday. So I'm like looking at the week ahead, super busy week, like something on the calendar every day and every evening. And the following week, something on the calendar every day and every evening. And I just got like, I don't know about you, but if I look at my calendar and I see something every single night, I just get stressed, I get overwhelmed. I'm like, something's gotta go, I need a night to just do nothing or whatever. And so I was like, oh, it's all really good stuff, but I don't know what has to go. And so I just, I was like, I'm just gonna power through. The day of the concert comes, I did not sleep well the night before, had a super long day. We had just a lot going on um, with church and then meetings and then all this stuff. And so by like three or four in the afternoon, I was like about to text my friend, like, I just wanna cancel. But I had already bought the tickets, so I kind of felt like I had to go. So. Um, but you see how in that short span of time, this concert went from like a gift, like, oh, I got a ticket to the second show. I'm so excited. I really want to do this. And it became a chore. It became something that I felt like I just had to do, even though originally I had really wanted to do. Just to fill you in, I, I had my coffee. I took a break. We went to the show. It was, it was phenomenal. I'm really glad that I went. Sometimes you just have to push through. Um, but for many of us, you know, I think we face this same cycle when it comes to living out God's mission for justice and mercy. I think we hear a good sermon or we, we read a good passage of scripture and we're reminded about God's heart for justice and mercy. So, you know, we make our plans to, to do something about it, but then somewhere along the way, we either lose interest or the desire to do it eventually fades. So we face that choice. We can opt out and say, you know what, I'm not gonna do it this time, or we just power through with the, with the Nike kind of just do it mentality and we just power through. But either one of those is not sustainable for the long run, right? Neither of those is gonna get us through for the rest of our days and actually do long-term sustainable justice. Justice is more of a marathon race than a sprint. Do we have any marathon runners in here? Raise, raise of hands, anybody? Oh man, I know, oh, I see one. 
How long do you train? How long did you train before your marathon? Do you remember? A year? Yeah, a year. A year of training. To, I've, I've obviously never run a marathon, but I know that it requires a lot of training. We all know that if you're gonna run a marathon, you don't just decide. Even the most healthy, fit people in this room don't think, oh yeah, Sam preached a really good sermon about running a marathon, I'm running one tomorrow. I'm just gonna hop, boom, 26.2 miles. No, we, we don't do that because we have to learn how to become the kind of person who can run a marathon. We have to stretch, we have to gain endurance, we have to I, learn how to run properly. I just go and then eventually my calves hurt or something. So simply, simply put, we have to become the kind of person who has the physical ability to run a marathon. And in the same way, we need to become the kinds of people who can do justice in our everyday lives. This is a kind of justice that comes from the deepest place of desire, not from guilt, not because it's something that we have to do, but because it's something that we want to do. You know, it's interesting, Micah says, do justice, walk humbly, but in the middle, he says, love mercy. We all know love is both an action and an emotion or a desire. It's something that if we're truly loving something in that emotional inner desire sense, we will show it with our actions. That's what true love is. So the invitation for us to love mercy is an invitation for us to unite our inner and our outer lives, our emotional desire with our actions, our private spirituality with our public spirituality. I think this is key for us to face the problems that many Christians have made, the attempt to separate being the Missio Dei from doing the Missio Dei. If you remember, I said earlier, uh, the Lord's charge against Israel in this passage from Micah was not necessarily that God had a problem with their worship rituals. He wasn't necessarily upset about their sacrifices or their offerings. No, the problem was that their worship rituals were not shaping them into people of justice outside of the temple. And our churches today face the same problem. Do our worship services, our prayer gatherings, our community nights, do they form us in such a way that just Justice and mercy flows from us into the streets of the city. I think this is a question we must constantly be asking. How does what we do in here affect our lives and others' lives out there? Elizabeth O'Connor wrote a wonderful book. It's called Journey Inward, Journey Outward. It's pretty simple. You could probably guess what it's about based on the title. And it is, it's about exactly that. It's about how fo following Jesus requires both an inward journey and an outward journey. The inward journey is about our inside lives, our inner lives, spiritual formation, our relationship with God, our relationship to ourselves, and even with others inside the church. It's what happens inside these walls during our worship gatherings when we take time to reflect on our emotional lives and focus on our mental health. It's what happens when we come before God in prayer and fasting and other spiritual disciplines. The inward journey is immensely important. I, I'm obsessed with it, I really care about it. But then there's the outward journey. The outward journey is what happens outside of these walls. When we serve those in need, when we fight for justice in broken systems, when we're merciful to those on the margins. To be God's mission and do God's mission, we need both the inward and the outward journey. 
uh, Elizabeth O'Connor says this, the inward journey must not be sacrificed to the outward journey, nor the outward to the inward. There is no transformation that way. Just as we are committed to being on an inward journey for all of time, so are we committed to be on an outward journey so that the inner and the outer become related to one another. One has meaning for the other and helps to make the other possible. One way to maybe visualize what she's saying is that the Christian journey inward and outward, it's, it's sort of like breathing. If I'm actually breathing, I have to breathe in and I have to breathe out. One cannot exist with the other. For some of us, we might find it easier or more natural to live the inward journey. We could spend all day in prayer and worship. We love coming to community nights and Sunday gatherings. We have a deep awareness of what's going on in our emotional and mental lives, and we want to bring that into our relationship with God, and that's wonderful. Others of us find it more natural or easy to live the outward journey. We're happy to show up and serve the most vulnerable of our city. We have a passion to bring justice to broken systems. We know that Jesus spent his time with tax collectors and sinners, and we want to do the same. And that's wonderful. But I want to be clear, the invitation of Jesus is not an either-or but a both and. So for those of us who are more naturally inclined to this outward journey, you've probably been nodding your head this whole sermon. You're probably quite familiar with these prophecies that Jesus referenced with Amos calling for justice to roll like a river and Micah inviting us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. My invitation to you who find the outward journey more natural would be to press into the inward journey to ask how might you root what you're doing in the world with a deep sense of being in God's presence. That way you won't burn out. That way there's spiritual strength behind your active strength. And for those of us who are naturally inclined to the inward journey, how might we press into the outward journey? How might what we do in here, our worship services and prayer practices and gatherings, how might they form us so that justice flows out of us in our streets of our city? Well, with our last few minutes, I promise I'm getting toward the end here. I want to go very, get very practical and try to actually consider what this could look like for us as individuals and as a church community. We will, of course, we're always going to be on the inward journey together. I think that's what many churches do well. We will gather for worship and prayer and ask God to form our hearts and our lives. But how will those practices spill out into the city? I think the best place to start answering that question is kind of look at examples and get specifically uh, to, to, toward defining what justice and mercy really are. So I want to start with mercy. I think one of the clearest examples of the idea of mercy is found in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the short version of the story is that Jesus um, gives a powerful response to an expert in the law who asks the question, who is my neighbor? The story goes like this. A man was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked, robbed, and left for dead. I'm sure you've heard the story before. A priest saw him, but he decided to pass by. A Levite also saw, but decided to pass by. But a Samaritan, the one who you would least expect to care, bandaged him up, lifted him onto his donkey, and brought him to an inn, covering all the expenses for the innkeeper to look after him while he healed. Jesus, after telling this story, asks the expert, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the one who was robbed? 
The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy is the Samaritan, right? And Samaritan, the Samaritan saw the hurting man and he cared for him. He tried to meet his immediate immediate needs. That's what mercy looks like in action. Mercy is about seeing the immediate needs of those around us and doing something to help meet those needs. Mercy looks like seeing someone who's hungry and feeding that person. Mercy looks like seeing someone who's lonely and visiting that person. Mercy looks like finding housing for those without homes, and the list could go on. But justice, justice is similar to mercy, and they overlap, but it's a little bit different. While mercy is about looking to provide immediate needs, justice is asking why those needs are there in the first place. Justice is about asking why was there someone who wanted to rob the man on his way to Jericho? Why and what were the underlying systems and issues that led to such an attack? Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has a wonderful sermon based on the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan. And so I'll just quote him because he obviously says it better than I could. There's no suggestion that the Samaritan organized to investigate the lack of police protection on the Jericho Road, nor did he appeal to any public officials to set out after the robbers and clean up the Jericho Road. Here was the weakness of the good Samaritan. He was concerned with temporary relief, not with thorough reconstruction. He sought to soothe the effects of evil without going back to uproot the causes. Now, without a doubt, Christian social responsibility includes the sort of thing the good Samaritan did. But there is another aspect of Christian responsibility which is just as compelling. It seeks to tear down unjust conditions and build anew instead of patching things up. It seeks to clear the Jericho Road of its robbers as well as care for victims of robbery. Justice is about fixing broken systems by going for the root causes of injustice in the world. Justice looks like Moses confronting Pharaoh to demand freedom for enslaved Israelites. Justice looks like local churches organizing and advocating for needed change in the public school system. Justice looks like Jesus turning over tables in the temples. Dr. Cornell West says it so simply. Justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. And we, as Christians, we will be known by our love. The church throughout history, even with her many flaws and many sins, has always been known for her true identity, her true self, by the way that she loves. Uh, Have you ever noticed, if you look around, many hospitals, they have Christian names or they're named after saints, right? St. Joseph, St. Mary's, St. Jude's. Why is that? It's because the church started hospitals as an act of justice to heal the sick. They saw a broken system that people were hurting and they needed some a better way to provide healing. I don't know about you, but to me that sounds like the church acting like a force for good in the world. That sounds like justice leading to tangible good news in the real world. That sounds like something that I want to be a part of. So what might it look like, just super specific and practical for us 
to practice justice and mercy. We look around our city, we look around our world, there are so many needs, so many hurting people, so many hurting systems, not just in Chicago, but around the world. So how do we know where to start? And I wanna be clear, I know all of you, you're not starting this journey, you're on this journey, so I'm not calling you out, like here's where you need to start. But we all get stuck, we all get stuck along the way, and so I think one place to start is with some personal reflection, to really slow down and ask, what are the gifts and resources that God has given me? What am I passionate about? Where do I find myself getting fired up in response to injustice? Where do I notice and see people in the city around me who are in need, and how might I be able to serve them. If you start by looking inward to the passions and the desires that God has given you, you will be able to lead the most effective and sustainable outward change that won't fizzle out because you feel guilty about it. And we should ask the same questions not only to ourselves as individuals, but as a community, as a church. We're a a local church. What are the gifts that God has given us as a community, and how do they collide with the needs of the city? I know, I'm new to this community, I've only been here a few months, but I know that this community deeply cares about justice and mercy. I know that we have a history of loving our city well, and I know that people in this community are already having these conversations and doing justice in the world around us. I've met so many of you who are already doing this kind of work. I mean, Ali is, is helping us run this Amani pop-up today because it just flows out of who she is. The World Relief Welcome Kit flows out of something that was birthed in this community before I ever stepped in the doors. But we do have um, some ideas just to keep this conversation going. Again, not to start the conversation, but to continue having an ongoing conversation. We're partnering with World Relief for the Welcome Kit, and there's also a ton of other really cool ways. Um, Ali mentioned there's hundreds of Afghani refugees and other refugees and migrants coming to Chicago in the coming months. So one way that we might be able to partner is they do this um, ministry called a Good Neighbor Team. Five or six of us, we could maybe start one, maybe more than one, where we literally show up to welcome a refugee family. We pick them up from the airport. We have meals with them. We become present and become friends with them for six to 12 months. We could partner with an organization called Breakthrough, which serves those affected by poverty in East Garfield Park, showing up, uh, providing meals, providing tutoring. They do a lot of different things. We have ideas to continue using our You Are Loved booth at events like Halloween on Southport and just other local ways to be present to our neighbors, reminding them that they're loved. I just want to paint a picture for you. You know, sometimes this could look more like fighting for justice on behalf of the oppressed. Other times it will look like the Good Samaritan being merciful to someone in need. Sometimes it will look like showing up to cook a meal. Other times it will look like donating money to support a good cause. Sometimes it will look like advocating for political change on a local or national level. Other times it will be as simple as purchasing something from an ethical company rather than resorting to whatever is cheapest or quickest. We will keep talking about this from the front, but we also want to have these conversations with you in different settings. Again, these are just some initial ideas. We want our justice and mercy to flow from the gifts and passions and resources that God has given us as a church community. So what has God 
placed on your heart? What questions are you asking as you look at the city around us? Where do the burdens of our neighbors intersect with the gifts God has given us? Um, Again, we want to keep having these conversations. So I want to let you know, just to to close us out here, we're going to be starting a team of justice and mercy advocates. So if these conversations are piquing your interest, or if you've been having these conversations for a long time, if you want to be a part of what this would look like within Missio Dei Wrigleyville, we would love to keep this conversation going. Um, As you know, there's some QR codes on the back of the chair as well as in the back. You could scan that. There's a link that says Justice and Mercy Advocates. And when you go there, there's going to be just two questions that you can fill out along with your contact information. You're not committing to anything just yet, just committing to be a part of, a, of another conversation and to, to keep this going. So I'd, I'd highly encourage you, if this is something you feel like you have the bandwidth to do in a more um, conversational level, but also we're going to gather What I see this being in the coming weeks is that we'd gather to pray together so that this would flow out of our spiritual formation, but we're also going to be a team of people who shows up to cook meals, who shows up to serve those in need, who shows up um, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So I'd really encourage you, if you want to keep that conversation going, to scan the QR code, and we will follow up with you. The world is asking a really powerful question. Is the church a force for good in the world? Is the church a force for good in the world, or does the church do more harm than good? By the power of the Holy Spirit and by our willingness to join God in justice and mercy, I I hope and I pray that the answer to that question will be yes. Let's close in prayer. God, we know your original design and calling for the church was that we would be the Missio Dei. We would be your hands and feet to the world around us. So help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to discern tangible, practical ways that you're calling us to love our neighbors, tangible, practical ways that you're calling us to do justice, not just by by serving food to those who are hungry, but by looking at why they are hungry in the first place and doing something, Lord. Help us. We can't do this by ourselves. We can't do this out of a place of guilt. We can only do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So one of the uh, things we've been doing as a community after our our sermons is just spending a moment in prayer and confessing our sin before the Lord. And so um, in this season, we've just been reminded that we need to make space to kind of uncover the ways that we've turned from God's way of justice and mercy and humility. So to set up our time of confession, I wanted to read from Amos 5, um, but I particularly wanted to read from the message version of the Bible, which uses some more modern language. I think it speaks to us. Uh, I hope it speaks to us. So I'm going to read that, and then I'm going to leave a moment of silence, and I'm going to invite you to pray aloud with me the words that are on the screen. So here's Amos 5 from the message. This is God speaking to the people of Israel, but I think it's relevant to us today. God says, 
I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all that I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice. Oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. Join me in praying the words that are on the screen. Lord, we acknowledge you as holy and loving the God of justice and mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Father, forgive us. Holy Spirit, strengthen and embolden us. Jesus, cover us in your love and grace. Amen. The book of 1 John says that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and bring us into a righteous relationship with God. So through Jesus, we are forgiven and we're freed by the power of the Holy Spirit to live out God's way of justice and mercy in our lives. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.